Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the School Safety Free Period. I'm Amanda Klinger. And I'm Dr. Amy Klinger. And we're with the Educators School Safety Network. We are a national nonprofit. Um, people who are returning hear me say this spiel all the time, so I apologize. Uh, we're a national nonprofit organization and we provide school safety training and resources and technical assistance. And usually we are very academic and we are pretty formal, but every once in a while, um, also known as every other Thursday, right around this time, we are a little bit less formal and we're a little bit less academic. And we a talk more reflective, I'd like to say. Sure, 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 sure. We, it's a little less formal, but we are uh, still talking about school safety and we still have some really important takeaways. So um, you want to go ahead and get us started? Well, sometimes in the, the school safety free period, we have funny things um, or sort of absurd things. Um, but not always. Um, so I think today we have a bit of a mixed bag as well. So I'll start out with something that is not necessarily um, terrible. It just was a little bit, uh, it struck me. So let's see how it strikes you. Um, I was reading an article um, from Goodreads um, about recommendations for from their readers of the 11 most popular true crime novels of all time. Okay. Um, and it talks about, the article talks about October is a time of year when we have fun being scared by imaginary monsters like vampires and zombies. But as we know, real life is far more frightening than any movie creature. And it goes on to talk about what Goodreads readers said were the 11 most popular true crime. I just want to interject briefly and go, clearly you used to be an English teacher. Right. For for those of us who uh, didn't know that fact. What's that? Have, I mean, what? clearly what? What did I say? <laughs> Nothing. This is a very English teacher introduction. Please continue. Well, anyways. Um, and so some of them come up that, you know, because and, and that's what caught my attention is me thinking, so what would I say? You know, which ones would you and you think of? And I, as a former English teacher, I did name some of them that did show up in the top. 11. I'm not sure why there were 11. I like top 10, but you know, in true in, in, in cold blood by Truman Capote, mm -hmm. um, helter skelter. Those were the two that I had thought of. Is there a and famous then, book about the black Dahlia? Um, yeah. And so there's a variety of the different ones, but number five is the one that I want to kind of draw your attention to because it just struck me and I'm curious to see, you know, what our listeners feel about that. Um, number five rated number five is the Dave Cullen book of Columbine. Um, and it, it, it's just a very interesting thing of how we have transitioned from Columbine as sort of a, a news event and a sort of seminal moment in terms of what it meant, you know, sort of a 9-11 sort of moment in mm -hmm. terms of what it meant for schools. Mm -hmm. And then to see it relegated here to a sort of uh, not escapist isn't the word I want, but relegated to this sort of disconnected um, reading about this particular, you know, at the same level of, you know, Helter Skelter and some of these other ones, which clearly those were horrific events that really right. impacted those folks. So I'm just curious what your response was to see that as one of the most popular, quote unquote, true crime novels. Yeah. It does feel a little tone deaf. Um, I mean, I, I think I, I'm not super well read on uh, Charles Manson stuff, for example. That's the Helter Skelter, right? Yeah. But it seems to me that that 
concern or that threat or that tragedy perhaps does not loom as large in people's minds as something like Columbine. And so it does, it does to me feel a little tone deaf um, that, you know, that. And it's almost like it's being offered up as entertainment. Well, it certainly is. It's a, it's a top 11 list of things that you should read for spooky for Halloween that it definitely is being offered up as entertainment. Yeah. I mean, there is no, you know, and I understand there's lots of other ones in here. You know, if you look at, at, you know, the, the mind hunter is in there and lots of ones about the, you know, these sort of cult like murders and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, all of which are terrible and horrific, but, and even the description of the book, Cullen, a reporter who followed the story from the beginning, offers a detailed and thoughtful account of the assault. How do you provide a thoughtful account of mass murder? I, I was a well, little struck by that. He also presents an insight into the two shooters' uh, motives that contradicts much of the public conceptions about them. So I don't know. I just that that just struck me. So well, I just was curious. I mean, there's a part of me that wants to draw a distinction between in between true crime and school shootings and and the consumption of media about both of them. Um, I, I would not say that I'm into true crime. Um, I did listen to the you know the first season of Serial, the podcast, which is about a true crime. Um, but that I mean, so there's a part of me that says, there is something that's a little tone deaf about all of it, right? I mean, well, we talked about that in, yeah. in our trainings about the impact of using the horrific murder of folks as quote unquote entertainment or diversion or how fascinating is it? And you know, you and I have talked about mm-hmm. certain podcasts and stuff where I'm sort of like horrified of, I don't want to listen to that and then right. i don't know i think i think perhaps the distinction is that there seems to be there's something specific about when you talk about columbine and you talk about school shootings that it is you know young people or youth committing the crime so there's something about that that i think is a little bit different and i think especially and, and their victim most of the victims are are also mm-hmm. kids mm-hmm. and i think there's also something to be said that you Obviously, and again, I, I don't know a ton about this, but I think there probably are murderers and serial killers that are still happening today that are influenced or drawn inspiration from past events and past killers. Um, but I don't think in those that you can draw as straight of a line that you can from Columbine to threats and shootings and incidents yeah. that happen today. And I know we talk about that in, in our research, that there are things that are directly referencing Columbine. Um, and that are happening like last week, right? Not and, like and I, months ago or two years ago or five years ago, right? And I just don't, I don't suspect that that line is as straight from Charles Manson to today, or what happened in in Cold Blood to today, or the Black Dahlia murder to things that are happening today. And and that could be the case. And I, I, I yeah, maybe wrong. it's the, the 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 time. I don't know, but but I think, and I don't want to come across as though I'm saying. The, these topics should not be written about. I mean, clearly, there there is a need for us to understand and to to uh, you know avoid making the same mistakes over and over. But I'm assuming that these sort of books that are written um, are not written for purely the voyeurism or the entertainment or the spookiness or the yeah, whatever. There's something about it being 
spooky that is yeah, a little was, a little bit extra distasteful and the other thing to keep in mind real jarring to me when yeah. i saw that list well, and also some of it is time i mean of all those things of the three that you mentioned that's the most recent one yeah there's ones that are more recent i'm sure if i went through here long enough i would find ones that are that are more recent yeah. i do want to say I do want to say one thing that you said that, that in in the description of the book that it was a uh, thoughtful look at the killers and you know a thoughtful uh, account you know information about the killers that people might not otherwise know. I think if you wanted to read a nuanced account of how did we get to that point, what were the things that were going on with those two attackers that they ended up at the point that they ended up at, I think perhaps a better choice to read not for your spooky October reading, um, would be Sue Klebold's book, um, the book by the mother of one of one of the attackers. Um, it is tough. It is a gut punch um, to read, but it's backed up by brain science. It's a discussion of what she observed. And, you know, there's a little bit of it that's memoir of what happened to her and her family in the wake of that tragedy. Um, which, you know, obviously none of that to absolve what happened. But I think it's really an interesting discussion. I was looking at it through the lens of violence prevention because she really wrestles with this question of, I had a good relationship with my son. I thought I knew my son. How could this possibly have happened under my watch? I'm a terrible, awful, horrible parent. And she sort of gets to this place where she sort of, you know, I, I could, we could have done this better. And it's, and it's not that she's like beating herself up. But it's sort of this, like, here's skills for you, other parents. And I'm not yeah. saying that other parents, your kids are going to do an attack like this, but other kids who might be at risk for other types of violence, lower level violence, and especially suicide. And she looks a lot, a lot of it through the lens of suicidality. So I think if we're looking for a good read about Columbine, um, that would be uh, my recommendation. Yeah, and that's the, and that's the point, is clearly these things need to be read and studied and analyzed and reflected upon. Mm -hmm. My issue with this was just like, here's some diverting entertainment sort of reading, mm -hmm. you know, that I guess, and I'm not saying it shouldn't have been on the list or shouldn't. I just, uh, it, it, it struck me. There is something um, real tone deaf about calling a school mm -hmm. shooting that still looms large uh, as a spooky. Yeah. Spooky but anyways, video. so, so that's the, the one thing that I don't have a strong opinion on. The other thing is I do have some strong opinions on. So here we go. That was um, your not strong opinion, was that? <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't like, uh, yeah, it wasn't an overly, I, I'm open to both sides of that. Um, the one that I want to talk about today, um, oh, and of course, I'm, I'm struggling with a bit of, of technical problems, of course. Um, so I'm, this is a thing that happened. Um, oh, why? Why can I not get this to pull up? Sorry about that. Now I'm it's wanting me to do a subscription. Um, this was a, a thing that we have noticed, and I'm not necessarily trying to. Uh, I'm not necessarily trying to create a problem where there isn't one, but you do have to. I, I do have a little bit of a snicker. So this occurred um, a week or two ago, about ten days ago, um, at a middle school. Of course, <laughs> having spent half my life with middle school people. If you have something, it happened at a middle school. Um, and this was um, where some, and we've got to use really specific terms here. School safety personnel, I'm using their exact terms, okay. used uh, pepper spray 
to resolve a disturbance during one of the school's lunch hours. And it is called an, uh, an unfortunate um, turn of events. And they put this out, the school put out a message uh, to parents that described the incident as an, an unfortunate disturbance that occurred that required pepper spray to control the situation as a means of reaching a quick and safe resolution. So, yeah, we That's would like you to know that students who are in the immediate area have been seen or treated or in the process of being seen or treated in our nurse's office. We also have EMTs available to support students who might have been exposed to the pepper spray. You know what? There's other ways to take care of unfortunate incidents. That's like saying it's very unfortunate that there were mice here. And so I used a mouse trap and they were killed in a mouse trap. And it was very unfortunate. Like uh, it was well, the only way that I could resolve this. Or, or if we're going to use your mouse analogy that I just torched the whole place to get rid of the mice yeah. would be sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I just found it very, I mean, there are a lot, uh, you know, in my career as an educator, I was involved in the reconciliation of a number of unfortunate disturbances because really is there a fortunate disturbance i mean that would be the next question um so i just find it i the the use of the pepper spray is a bit troubling and we've seen a lot of a that troubling that well no i mean it's yeah it's troubling and we've seen a lot of that this fall you know we had the kid that got on the bus and pepper sprayed everyone on the bus we had I a kid deputies pepper spraying people yeah we have we've had kids and law enforcement pepper spraying kids this this fall and now we have school safety personnel which i'm not sure who that exactly is so there's a couple of things about that number one there's a little bit of the snickering about an unfortunate disturbance and then there's the administrator and me going those were our best options um but okay Do and then there's the serious discussion of are we at the point where we are treating our kids as a riot mob like you would if you had a riot in a prison camp. In cell here. block A. Do they ever yeah. explain what was the unfortunate incident? Uh, nope. Nope. N nobody's saying. I mean, an unfortunate, it's not an unfortunate incident. It's an un un unfortunate disturbance. I mean. So you, you could say, and I'm sure this is not the case, but you could say that you had kids that were chanting, yeah. we love the gnat, you know, the, the gnats or something. And then someone else going, we hate the gnats. And then we went, this is an unfortunate disturbance. Spray them. Yeah. I'm sure that's not what happened. But on the other hand, if you really had people, you know, that were like rioting. If, I mean, the is only, that really what we had? I mean, the only reason that I can. Seventh or eighth graders? The only reason I can reasonably think that we would need to employ pepper spray against middle schoolers is if there was going to be serious danger to people, right? So we had such a brawl that there was going to be serious injury, and so we pepper sprayed them. If that's the case, why isn't that what we say? Why do we say there was an unfortunate disturbance? How yeah. about yeah. there was a fight, there was violence occurring. We had 75 kids throwing chairs at each other. Right. We had violence we had such that imminent danger that we were concerned about imminent danger. Yeah. So, and this just strikes me again, I, you know, I'm not taking this school district to, you know, to task about it per se, you're, but you're not the attorneys for those, the parents of those kids yeah. will. Well, but I just find it troubling that like it, like a little storm cloud on the horizon, 
that all of a sudden we're seeing mm -hmm. this this sort of eroding of or the gradual acceptance of pepper spray as a tool in the toolbox for the control of students in a school. For the control that, of middle schoolers, especially. Well, yeah, because you're right. I think all three instances, at least three or four of the instances we've been looking at were all middle school. I, I think the, to me, the one where a kid is using pepper spray is a separate instance, a separate right. incident. That's just a kid's being dumb and right. it's going to happen. We have adults using pepper spray to control students. They're all in the middle school. Right, but there, there's not that, it's not that big of a jump to go, well, if the authorities are going to use it on us, why don't I use it on these kids that are bothering me? That's not that big of a jump, frankly. Well, sure. So, I mean, are we I, normalizing? Are I, we normalizing the idea that we're going to use riot control measures on middle school kids? I'm really curious what is their policy because either they didn't they didn't have a policy because if it was school safety personnel so that would indicate to me that it was either employees of the school district or folks who were contracted by the school district not law enforcement yeah. so they right. are they are an arm of the school so that yes. means that this spraying of students should have happened pursuant to a policy which leads me to question you had a policy on the books that if things get bad enough, we're going to pepper spray your kid. Okay. No, you had to sign that the first day of school. I, mean, I understand. That's a little alarming. Or the the inverse of that is they were pepper spraying kids and they don't have a policy saying we're going to pepper spray kids sometimes, which, I mean, how is that any different than, I mean, corporal punishment? I mean, if we don't, I mean, I know there's a lot of states that allow corporal punishment, but if we, broadly speaking, uh, frown upon that uh, as a... But, but wait, wait, if you want to take the corporal punishment analogy, this was beating every kid. This was not selectively spanking a certain kid. This was, I'm beating every single kid in the cafeteria because that pepper spray was contaminating kids that weren't doing anything. Yeah, that is wild. I, I think we'll need to keep an eye on that because it, it happening, coming from coming from law enforcement, I'm not saying that's a great idea, but when it's law enforcement employing Pepper against students, they at least have right. policies and procedures and rules but of engagement. It, but and, what is it symptomatic of? It's symptomatic of overlaying a law enforcement response to unruly behavior. Mm -hmm and overlaying that onto kids. And so the question is, is that developmentally appropriate? Is that an education-based solution? And I understand, because I can hear our listeners screaming at their radios, or not radios, their podcast mechanisms, that yes, we know there are kids who are out of control mm -hmm. in school. And we mm -hmm. know that there are violent and aggressive and threatening behaviors, because we're hearing it more and more from folks. So I understand that that's, mm -hmm what we're up against. But my question is, do we really think pepper spraying those kids into submission is going to take care of the root cause mm -hmm. of that violent and threatening behavior? Well, it's like teaching a toddler not to hit by hitting them. I mean, there's an unintended consequence there. Yeah. So I just found this one to be really fascinating. And it's yeah. not like, you know, I don't feel like I'm suddenly out there searching for pepper spray stuff. I mean, it is just coming. We're, we're seeing this yeah. trend sort of emerging. And because we are cutting edge 
Um, I think it's important for people to start thinking about this of wait, wait, wait. Is there a little tipping point here where maybe we're getting a little bit, you know, we're employing uh, what's the, the saying about when all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. Are we just, you know? Yeah. Well, and, did I say that right? Yeah. When you're a ham, when all you have is a hammer, everything's a yeah, nail. Yeah. Okay. I, I think, I mean, there's going to be some serious litigation um, if there, if that's not already in the works, because. I would like to read the policy on pepper spray. I would like to read what that says. I mean, there are no RTI, you know, there, there's not a response to intervention that goes, yeah. yes, in this behavioral situation, we're going to use pepper spray as our intervention. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, in, in Tinker versus Des Moines, when they talk about, you know, speech that causes a substantial disruption can be punished or restricted. I don't think they were really contemplating that being punished with pepper spray. Um, yeah. So. And also the, you know, you've got one issue of like what you're doing to the kids who are the perpetrators, mm -hmm. but then you're doing this general. And, and that's what I guess is the most troubling thing for me is this general cell block a riot mentality of we're going to take everybody down. Yeah. You know, because if you're not involved in this, unfortunate disturbance you might be at any second yeah which is again that 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 sort of perpetrator mentality of these are all of our inmates and we're trying to you know yeah yikes wow. i'm thinking there's might be a climate and culture problem there as well yeah okay so that kind of segues us into the final thing that i want to talk about today and this one i'm a little bit um i'm i'm a little bit cranked up about and i'm also trying to be like reasonable. So okay. um, this was an article that I read um, actually by a reporter that I've talked with several times and I find him to be very even handed and very interested in this topic. And the article itself, I think is very well written and does a pretty good job of examining all sides of this, but it's talking about the school superintendents association who I am not trying to pick a fight with in any way. Um, but I think this just needs to be, this needs to be something that we reflect on. I, I said earlier, we want to reflect. So we're not gonna arrive at a verdict, but we're gonna maybe challenge people to reflect. Mm -hmm. um, it was, the, the article talks about how the School Superintendents Association has a school solution partners mm -hmm. program where companies pay $18,000 a year, a year, mm -hmm. for the right to call themselves school solution partners and what has, this is not me, this is a number of ethics experts and security experts raising ethical concerns about people paying for influence or paying for access to school leaders and decision makers. And this implied idea that it is being endorsed because you're, or vetted just because you paid $18,000, which is not- that would be my question. So does the $18,000 used to defray the cost of vetting the efficacy of their no, solution? No, 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 no. It is an $18,000 per partner contribution to a nonprofit organization. Um, and, you know, the one that I think raised a lot of the questions, there's 18 companies in the school solutions partner. Um, and one of them has only sold one product to one school, but yet they are being presented as a school solution partner. And as you might well guess, most of these are security based for profit stuff, which we, you know, spend all of our time railing against. 
Um, and the the belief is that this allows school leaders to show the communities they serve how much they're trying to save money and improve student performance. Um, most of these vendors, either for our, our own employee or in our day-to-day -day operations, that they use those. No, one of them is ballistic shields. I find it very hard to believe that the Association of School Superintendents is walking around with ballistic shields at $2,600 a piece. Hmm. Well, I think it's probably important to note that this uh, article was specifically talking about this program with the Association of School Superintendents, but that this is not uh, a concern unique to that association. Um, no. There are similar, pro there are similar um, programs that happen in the principals associations, in other professional and educational associations. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, and this is, I guess this is symptomatic of what you and I would say is a, a larger problem that would, that we would challenge lots of organizations to reflect upon. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is, this is a, um, a, I'd like to read a quote from a security consultant um, who was at one time a superintendent in Newtown, um, I don't think at the time of the event, but he said, in the world of a busy superintendent, if a partner is endorsed by AASA, Really, what that tells the superintendent is they don't need to do a heck of a lot of research that the product or company is sound and it's best for kids. And therein lies the rub. Mm -hmm. That if you believe your association has vetted, and they have it, and you believe your association has is recommending them and they aren't based other than on their ability to write a check for $18,000, mm -hmm. it really undermines these associations and it really puts school leaders into the position that we already have identified them in, which is what am I supposed to buy? What am I supposed to mm -hmm. do? I don't have time to you know, vet a million different people mm -hmm. and it just reinforces the problem of who has the best marketing materials is what mm -hmm. I'm gonna buy. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, it is, I think this is, the only thing is that, you know, the pessimist in me is, you know, you say that it undermines the credibility of the organization. Does it really? I mean, how many people are going to read that article versus how many people are going to continue to be members of these professional associations that they've been members in for their entire career and they've, you know, have had other interactions with their associations where they went to a conference and they heard a good speaker and so they continue to have goodwill. I mean, I don't yeah. hold out a ton of hope that this one article is going to change this system. I oh, mean, no. because we we've been to you know, for example, uh, you know, we we've, we've been to different conferences where there's an entire trade show portion of the conference where there are people there who are selling things. And has anyone vetted any of the things that they're selling? No, it is it is entirely right, contingent upon I can pay the fee to have a booth at this thing. True. But I think that for me, one of the, the concerns is as a longtime member of professional associations like this, as an administrator, when I go to a conference and I look at the booths and I go to the trade show, I understand they are sponsors. Mm -hmm. But to take that and up the ante and say, these are solution partners or whatever I said they were called, yeah. I can't remember, school solution partners, mm -hmm that gives them a level of credibility that they don't deserve that's implied that they are somehow different than the people that just paid x amount for a booth mm -hmm. that they are somehow 
we've determined they are what you should be using. So it's kind of like, you know, all the different levels of people boarding an airplane, you know, if you're platinum or your gold or whatever this and this and this somehow these folks have been just by a bigger contribution been paid to get to a higher level and to have an implied credibility that they don't have well i would ask this question to you and i i honestly don't know this but it seems to me that this system is based more on a system of of things, of selling things, um, of sort of a security intervention. And my question to you as an education person is, is that how they would handle a curriculum partner? So if I am someone who is selling a reading curriculum, a third grade reading curriculum, could I write a check to the professional association of elementary folks or reading folks or whatever and be featured as a reading curriculum partner just by virtue of writing a check? Or if it was something like that, would people- I don't know. Would people I'm be more not. likely- would, People might have saying probably. I mean, I would suspect that people would be more likely. I, I think what it speaks to is this root cause of education folks do not feel like they can stand in a place of judgment of safety and security things because it is beyond our experience and we couldn't do that. Where and yeah. I, you and I have had this discussion before that in all of these safety and security interventions, educators feel like they cannot pipe up and say, "Hold on, that's really inappropriate." Now, if a security person or a law enforcement person was trying to change your reading curriculum, all the educators would stand up and go, Mm-mm, "Nope, uh, we yeah. need to make sure that that makes sense. We need to make sure that that's appropriate. We need to make sure that's based in evidence and that it's best practices." And educators feel like that's a thing that they can stand up for because it's so closely within their wheelhouse. I think right. some of this is the issue that people feel like I couldn't stand in judgment in judgment of who's a school solution partner. Yes, that's some of it. But if we're going to go with your reading analogy, most folks have a particular level of expertise in reading, maybe, but more significantly, they know who to talk to to say, hey, is this reading one any good? They 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 have experts, they have people within their own district that know there are, you know, other associations, there's other ways that they can get the information on does that thing work? Mm-hmm. There's probably lots of scholarly research on it. They have a familiarity with, you know, a particular publisher, um, all of those kinds of things, which is not the case for school safety stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there's the added part of there are no parents marching around the boardroom demanding a new reading curriculum. But there are parents marching around the boardroom demanding, do something, do something, keep this school safe, this thing happened, my kid got bullied, whatever this thing is. So it's a combination of, of all those factors. My concern is that I would look to professional associations to have a ethical responsibility to their members to at least be transparent enough to go, we don't know anything about these folks other than they paid us $18,000. And so here's a sponsor. Okay, great. But let's not call a solution something that is clearly not a solution. So you have one of your solution partners that's only sold one of their products. Yeah. Well, And, and, you know, and and then there's, of course, other ones too. But I think it's just, um, I think it sets up some real significant problems. 
Yeah, well, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, and, and I think it's also important to note that there are professional associations that don't do it this way. Um, for example, we had a book published by ASCD. Um, the book was not published or accepted for publication because we wrote a check. The right. book was accepted for publication because we spoke about the work and we spoke about our research and we spoke about this is what we want to talk about and these are our credentials and here's what we're saying and they vetted that content. So I think it's important to note that like that's possible. It's it's possible to partner and work with for it's part, possible right. for these professional associations to partner and work with people based on the content of their character or the content um, of their of their work as opposed to just who's willing and able well, to write a check. So I think that's important to note as well. And the the response from the association was that they don't seek out companies, but rather they get pitches from businesses hoping to form partnerships because, quote, they feel like that gives them credibility and that they've never had a complaint that we were in any way misleading our members. Yeah, because you don't know. Right. Until after you bought this thing and go, wait a minute, what is this? And, and so, you know, I guess a cynical folks could say, take the $18,000 from the company, go ahead, put it into the association. It helps you to put on good conferences and all these other things, which, yeah, okay. But we don't need any more misinformation. We don't need any more manipulation of educational leaders on this issue because it is so clear that there is a for-profit motive here of people that are making money on the backs of the fears that people have about active shooters. Well, it seems to me that a very easy solution is if, if we're not going to vet this stuff, then have it be treated like pure advertisement. I mean, everyone understands if my professional association has a publication and there's ads in it, there is still, you know, an association. There's, there is still, oh, you know, you, you know, my, my association was willing to publish your ad. They probably aren't publishing ad for like bongs or something. They probably do have some content standards for their ads. So there's still, you know, some, some intangible benefit of that. But at least if we're very clear, this is an ad, then you are not potentially misleading people into thinking yeah, I, this I is wasn't cranked up when it was a sponsor or an ad. I yeah. feel like we've maybe crossed the line when we have a, awarded an artificial level yeah. of endorsement or credibility based on your willingness to pay. Well, I mean, you see, I mean, you see this all on Twitter all the time. Retweets are not an endorsement. I mean, it's a, it's a very simple statement. These folks who paid this money to be in front of you, they've paid this money so that you come across their, their company. Doesn't mean it's an endorsement. I mean, that's a very simple solution. Yeah. And I also find it fascinating. You know, we do a lot of conferences and, and so, you know, and I've gone to a lot of conferences over the years and there is such a move, which I completely support to say, we want speakers at conferences to talk about content, not to sell things. Mm -hmm. And I completely support that. And we've seen really a move towards that except in this venue, mm. which is kind of also interesting. And I think some of that is because these companies you, have a you lot mean except of in the domain of school safety. Do you I'm mean sorry. that's the one? Do, what do you mean except in this venue? Like in, in the realm in this, of school safety? In this, no, in this area of school safety. Okay. Um, you know, I think we've seen a lot of, we don't want you selling your blackboards and we don't want you, or your, I mean, your erasable whiteboards and we don't want you selling your workbooks. Uh, we want to talk about literacy. Mm-hmm. 
But yet when it comes to safety stuff, yeah. there seems to be, well, school safety equals buying stuff. So mm -hmm. the only thing we can do is allow you to pay a lot of money and do a commercial. Yeah. So that's a bit troubling too, because that reinforces what, you know, if anyone's listened to us for more than five minutes, that reinforces the really troubling notion that we rail against in all of our webinars and other places of it's not just about stuff yeah. or we're buying the pepper spray that we're using to fog the cafeteria with the unfortunate disturbance. Well, and I think part of that is that a lot of the conferences that deal directly with school safety are outgrowths of security and law enforcement conferences, as opposed to being expansion of education conferences. I mean, when we speak at big name national education conferences, people look at us like we have three heads. Then it's like, whoa, a safety person? An education-based no, safety? Though. What? They're excited. Right, but it is, we are seen as such an anomaly, um, where at, because most of the school safety conferences are security conferences by security folks, for security folks and law, law enforcement folks. And, you know, when we speak at big time national education conferences, we are in the climate and culture track or the improvement track. It's always this sort of like tenuous, it's seen as this like tenuous connection to school safety. Um, and I think that is part of it. But on the fringes of education yeah, instead of yeah. the centerpiece of yeah. education. Yeah. And, and I'm in no way, you know, law enforcement conferences, law enforcement guys, they need to have equipment. They need hardware. They need those discussions. I get all that. Um, but I'm just saying when that becomes the centerpiece, when school safety is the fringe of education discussion, mm -hmm. we know we've got it wrong. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. Well, thank you for those of, uh, those of you who uh, joined us live. Um, we'll wave to the people who are watching us on, on video, and then you'll just have to imagine that we waved if you're listening to this as a podcast. I um, feel like I did a lot of air quotes this time, so I apologize oh, yeah, for that. Yeah, that's true. We, we probably need to have a way to have that be accessible to folks who are listening as a podcast. But Just imagine that I did an air quote every time I sounded. And just imagine every time she said things about like listening to it on your podcast machine, just imagine how hard I rolled my eyes, because I did. <laughs> so there you have it. Um, well, I said radio and I caught myself. That's, so. Yeah, I mean, that's almost better than saying podcast machine, I got to say. Uh, <laughs> so anyway. Um, like the way back machine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you're looking for more information, um, we have a lot of other free online professional development that's all available on our website, www.eschoolsafety.org. You can check us out on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, if you're listening to this as a podcast, like someone sent it to you, you can find this anywhere you get your podcasts. So iTunes, um, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. You can listen to it directly on our website. And uh, we have all of our contact information there. And if you are listening to it as a podcast, you know, please rate and review um, and subscribe. That really helps other like-minded folks. Actually, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can subscribe and write a review or give a thumbs up. Um, it really helps other people who are looking for content like this to be able to stumble across it. And then you always could also just send it directly to your colleagues if there's something that you thought was impactful or important or that you wanted to be able to discuss with other folks. So as always, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll talk to you next time.